I want to preface this episode by saying that I have hesitated to mention much of this content. I did not want to draw undue attention to the people I will name, and I did not want to make myself an open target by detailing the things I'm about to tell to you. But on this day, as I doom scroll through Twitter searching the latest updates on the situation in the Ukraine, it occurs to me that someone has to say these things out loud. Part of me thinks this will catch on and become part of the discourse at some point anyway, but right now, I'm not seeing much of what I'm about to tell you being mentioned. To be completely real with you here, this podcast is the largest platform I have, but it's not huge. Like, and I don't know how far my message will really travel. But right now, it just feels to me like I have some sort of moral responsibility to honor the platform I'm given and just spell this out for you. So I'm going to name a few names during the course of this episode knowing that some of the people I mention monitor this podcast just as I monitor their channels. Now, for some time now, I've been researching the far right and fascism. But this topic has kind of taken over this show. And obviously the state of the world does not help with this. But, I mean, ever since I had Laura Jadid on as a guest, I have been down a rabbit hole of studying far right extremism Approaching it from a philosophical angle, I mean, I started this show wanting to speak of politics, philosophy, and the human condition. But over time, I've learned that, you know, through conversations I've had here on this show, that the lens I see the world through is more Marxist than philosophical. But I, I started asking questions about how or why Marxists or anyone on the left would take inspiration from ideas of philosophers like Nietzsche, Heidegger, or Carl Schmitt. I felt that these philosophers would be hostile towards their ideas being used towards the goals of the political left. But I think I had an image of a fascist or a racist or a nationalist as someone who did not directly take their ideas from these philosophers. But if you study the far right for more than 10 minutes, you understand that these are not your grandpa's white supremacists. I mean, sure, there are always going to exist those reactionaries who are shallow in their reasonings. But the new right is full of academics and learned individuals, people who consider themselves Straussians, people who fetishize the Greeks like Athenian Stranger, or people like Richard Spencer, who claim to have been directly inspired by the works of Nietzsche. So I set out to investigate all of this, and I picked up a few books. I do this thing where I like read half a dozen books at a time. And I just pick one of those half a dozen books up, depending upon my mood and interest that day. Um, but I had a few of these books grouped together at a point a little while back. And, you know, one of them was Richard Poltz, Thinking Through Heidegger in the 30s. Another was Dangerous Minds by Ronald Beener. And I figured I'd revisit some Being in Time by Martin Heidegger as well and browse through some Nietzsche again. You know, I... Maybe I'd talked with my friend Matt over at Acid Horizon about Carl Schmidt. I mean, all those turned into episodes and all those congeal and make sense and all that goes together, right? And there's a core to that group of episodes of books that makes a logical sense. Um, but one book in this pile of books that I didn't quite know the relevance of at the time was a book called War for Eternity by Benjamin Teitelbaum. So Ben's book is one of the smaller books of the bunch, and it has a picture of Steve Bannon on it. Um, 
you know, compared to something like being in time or, uh, you know, the genealogy of morals. I mean, it's, it's like, I, I didn't expect all of those other books I mentioned before to, um, become the context that orbited Ben's book as like a central point of interest. Like that was completely unexpected. So we had, I had Ben on the show and, you know, I had all these guys on the show and uh, this is not, um, this is not a long form of self aggrandizement or like an ad to get you to go back to listen to those episodes. Right. But I want to tell you that through all of that, that's like seven, eight episodes. I purposefully did not base an episode on Alexander Dugan. Now I learned about Alexander Dugan because of Ben Teitelbaum's book and Dugan was a fascinating part of the things Ben wrote about in his book. Um, but I had my doubts as to Dugan's overall relevance to everything. Uh, you know, I mean, everything that he's said to be a part of, which is geopolitics to philosophy to far-right extremism. I mean, you can mention Alexander Dugan to people, but most folks won't know anything about him, or if they do, a lot of them will question his relevance as well. So why bring him up? Why focus on him, right? Well, as of a couple days ago, Russia invaded Ukraine. And I want to play a soundbite for you. And I can't place a date on this interview with Alexander Dugin, but I found this video on YouTube. It was uploaded on February 26, 2022 by a channel with a portrait of Julius Evola as the icon, and more on him later, by the way. It seems like this channel is in Portuguese, and this interview is probably a few years old, and sadly, I can't date it. Um, but given the events of the last few days, this should be pretty ominous. This is about a 90-second clip, and what you'll hear is Alexander Dugan speaking in a different language. He speaks several different languages. And there's a translator speaking above him. Today in Russia, the lack of national idea is felt very sharp. On the one hand, everyone understands it is necessary. On the other hand, it is not that easy to offer something reasonable, something new or something convincing yet. For many years I have been thinking over this problem and pouring at a problem of national idea and recently, uh, while analyzing the events in the world, visiting different European countries, one thought crossed my mind concerning the way to manage the issue of national idea. I will express it as an offer, as a hypothesis, and then probably the society, or above all, the state, will decide to accept it or not. The idea is that we need to occupy Europe, to conquer and annex. Here, firstly, many people would say, well, what is it, what does this idea mean, to conquer, to annex, to include in own borders, to win, how comes? And, on the other hand, after the first hostility is over, or indignation, or the feeling that something wrong is said or thought, or maybe it is a wrong time, a wrong epoch, and indeed, what does it mean to invade Europe? So who is Alexander Dugin? I mean, from his Wikipedia page, Alexander Dugin is a Russian philosopher, professor, political analyst, and geopolitical strategist. He was the main organizer of the National Bolshevik Party and the Eurasia Party. 
and we're going to have to talk about all of that. He also served as an advisor to the state Duma, and he's a leading member of the ruling United Russia Party. The United Russia Party is the largest political party in Russia's parliamentary system, holding 326 out of 450 seats. He's been described as a Eurasianist and a fascist. Now, Dugan is the author of more than 30 books, among them two of which I'm sure we're going to have to talk about, Foundations of Geopolitics and The Fourth Political Theory. First, though, I want to return to our current moment and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'm sure by now you understand the context, or at least I will tell you that I feel we should at least go over some of the broad strokes, and I apologize to anyone listening uh, for omitting whatever context they feel should be in this, but you know, I'm not a historian, and I'm certainly not trying to portray this as like an apologetic for Russia, um, uh, nor am I like taking a Ukrainian sovereignty point of view, like I'm just trying to, to flesh this out and tell you a story about Alexander Dugan, okay? So, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, was created in 1949, and it consisted of, at first, just a few countries, notably like Spain, Portugal, Italy, Britain, Norway, Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands, Denmark, and Turkey. And uh, this treaty organization was formed after World War II, for several reasons. I mean, Europe had just been decimated by World War II, and the United States was the only country which was left with, like, working infrastructure, a working economy, and military power. And also, according to George Kennan, we also had over half of the world's wealth. So, all that is true. But the primary reason NATO was created was to limit Soviet influence. In 1949, the Soviet Union had just lost about 25 million lives in World War II, and, I mean, they were in rough shape, and there wasn't much they could do about the forming of NATO. As a nation, or as a block of nations, Russia and other nations just kind of had to lick their wounds for a bit. And plus, given that the United States had just detonated atomic bombs twice in Japan, the Soviet Union set out to develop their own nuclear weapons, and, you know, suffice it to say, like their European counterparts, the Soviet Union was not a dominant superpower. Uh, despite the propaganda spread in the West, uh, the USSR was weak, and so they, they didn't prevent the forming of a Western alliance behind the hegemon of the United States, and NATO didn't expand from 1949 till 1982. So, I want to pause here and take a big meta view, like a big 10,000 foot view over the Cold War. At the end of World War II, America you know, being the global superpower that it was. With several other countries needing to recover from war, I mean, geopolitically speaking, America was able to behave the way a global hegemon in a unipolar power arrangement can and tends to do. See, I want to examine something that Professor John Mearsheimer has written extensively about, which is like, geopolitics from a unipolar, bipolar, and multipolar perspective and sort of the comportment of nations under each of these conditions. In a unipolar world like the one after World War II, 
The global hegemon can just push other nations around. I mean, they can make international defense treaties like NATO. They can dominate markets. They can restrict the players in a given market. And of course, they can also enlist other nations to participate in creating hostilities towards specific nations. I mean, you could make an argument that much of the tension in the world throughout the years after World War II came from the potential of a transition from a unipolar to a bipolar power arrangement. I mean, that's kind of what the Cold War was, and at its core, that's what the propaganda was about, wasn't it? I mean, if you are a global hegemon, then you really want a couple of things. I mean, one is that you don't want any peer competitors. You certainly don't want any peer competitors in your region. I mean, think of something like the Monroe Doctrine and how that exists to keep other great powers out of our hemisphere, out of Latin America, out of South America. But also, you don't want any peer competitors, period, right? I mean, it makes sense that the country that is dominant would like to remain dominant. I mean, maybe we can examine the adversarial relationship between the United States and the USSR through this lens. And that of course the United States would wish to do whatever it could to ensure the Soviet Union would not become a meaningful peer competitor. Perhaps the USSR and its role in its quest for nuclear weapons and geopolitical power was rooted in freeing those nations in the Soviet bloc from the restrictions placed upon it by a global hegemon in a unipolar international relation. So it would follow from there if the world was to become bipolar and its geopolitical power arrangements. The two reigning powers would have to be respectful of one another, I mean, wouldn't they? And we all know that didn't happen. So look, if you're familiar with the work of John Mearsheimer, you'll know that I'm lifting all of this grand meta-narrative from his work. So here's just a little bit of like Professor John Mearsheimer talking about some of this. Uh, I have said on numerous occasions, we're now entering a world uh, where the United States is no longer uh, the only great power on the planet. We're moving out of a unipolar world to a multipolar world where there are three great powers that really matter for shaping the international system. One, of course, is the United States, which will remain the most powerful state for the foreseeable future. China, which is the real challenger to the United States, and Russia. So NATO forms in 1949, and it stays mostly the same for a very long time. But you know, the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, and that kicked off the fall of the Iron Curtain, and also the fall of communism. And until this point, there had been, in an ideological sense, a bipolar and adversarial relationship between liberalism and communism, and now, liberalism appeared to be winning. I mean, in 1991, when the USSR fell and the Russian flag was raised above the Kremlin, it just appeared to the entire world uh, that liberalism had won out. Uh, you know, think of this in like a Fukuyama uh, sense of, you know, the end of history. As in, liberalism had won and we had moved from a sort of path of progress and we're now on instead a path of perfection uh, and russia being a newly formed capitalist country in alignment with the 
ideology of liberalism, right? You know, Russia being a newly formed country and America and either wishing to continue its dominance or wishing to just continue behaving like Russia was a potential peer competitor, they expanded NATO. And then in 1999, you know, NATO adds three members and Russia at this point being a capitalist country and having given up their previous ideology and economic modes of production, even asked to be a part of NATO. So I'm going to quote from an article in The Guardian by Jennifer Rankin, quote, Vladimir Putin wanted Russia to join NATO, but did not want his country to have to go through the usual application process and stand in line, quote, with a lot of other countries that don't matter. This is according to a former secretary of the Transatlantic Alliance. It doesn't name him. Uh, continuing on, quoting this article, George Robertson, a former Labor Defense Secretary who led NATO between 1999 and 2003, said Putin made it clear at their first meeting that he wanted Russia to be a part of Western Europe. They wanted to be part of that secure, stable, prosperous West that Russia was out of at the time, he said. The Labor peer recalled an early meeting with Putin, who became Russian president in 2000. He said, Putin said, when are you going to invite us to join NATO? And Robertson says, well, we don't invite people to join NATO. They apply to join NATO. And he said, well, we're not standing in line with a lot of countries that don't matter. This account aligns with what Putin told the late David Frost in a BBC interview shortly before he was first inaugurated as Russian president more than 21 years ago. Putin told Frost he would not rule out joining NATO, quote, if and when Russia's views are taken into account as those of an equal partner. He told Frost it was hard for him to, you know, visualize NATO as an enemy. Quote, Russia is a part of the European culture, and I cannot imagine my own country in isolation from Europe and what we often call the civilized world. So here is Russia, Vladimir Putin, asking to be part of NATO, if you can believe that. And NATO goes on from there to add seven more nations in 2004, two more nations in 2009, one more nation in 2017, and one more in 2020. So here's where we get to Dr. Alexander Dugin. Dugin is rumored to have the ear of Vladimir Putin to be his advisor. And since Russia has a history of autocratic rulers being advised by mystical characters with long hair and unkempt facial hair, of course, I'm alluding to Rasputin here, uh, there is a tendency of folks to dismiss this altogether. But you know, all of this makes sense when you consider that Dugin is a prominent member of the largest political party in Russia and has acted as an advisor to the state Duma in the past. Now, in 1997, Alexander Dugin publishes a book called The Foundations of Geopolitics, The Geopolitical Future of Russia. The cover of the book in at least one edition has an outline of the continents of Europe and Asia with the symbol of eight arrows expending outward, four of which point in the cardinal directions, the other arrows point in the direction of southwest, southeast, northwest, and northeast, and the symbolism of the Eurasian continent behind the outward expanding arrows it leaves no question the intention of this book. This is a manifesto for Russian expansion. I have to say that there is a resemblance between the occultist symbol for chaos and the eight outward pointed arrows that symbolizes the uh, Eurasian nationalist movement. And this book, Foundations of Geopolitics, 
has had a significant influence within the Russian military, police, and foreign policy elites. It's been used as a textbook in the Academy of the General Staff of the Russian military, which is pretty much the Russian equivalent of West Point to those of us here in America. Some Russian politicians have urged that Dugin's geopolitical doctrine be made a compulsory part of the school curriculum. So in this book, Foundations of Geopolitics, Dugin calls for Atlanticism, which is the close relationship the United States has with the European Union, otherwise known as transatlanticism. Uh, he calls for Atlanticism to lose its influence in Eurasia and for Russia to rebuild its influence through annexations and alliances. The book declares the quote, the battle for the world rule of Russians has not ended. And Russia remains, quote, the staging area for a new anti-bourgeois, anti-American revolution. The Eurasian Empire will be constructed, quote, on the fundamental principle of the common enemy, the rejection of Atlanticism, strategic control of the United States, and the refusal to allow liberal values to dominate us. Do you know of any other ideology that is founded on a fundamental rejection of a common enemy? I'm just throwing that out there. The book states that the maximum task of the future is the, quote, Finlandization of all Europe. I'm going to pause here and define Finlandization just so we're super clear about all of this, okay? Finlandization is the process by which one powerful country makes a smaller neighboring country refrain from opposing the former's policy rules, while allowing it to keep its nominal independence and its own political system. The term means to become like Finland, referring to the influence of the Soviet Union on Finland's policies during the Cold War. Now, you can kind of see how the Finlandization of Belarus is now serving Russia in this campaign of uh, annexing Ukraine that we're going through right now. And it's important to note that Foundations of Geopolitics advocates a sophisticated program of subversion, destabilization, and disinformation spearheaded by the Russian Special Services. There's not much of a military role being discussed in this work. But I want to keep a couple of these concepts in mind going forward. One, the reduction of influence of Atlanticism in Eurasia. Another thing is like Russia to rebuild its influence by annexations and alliances. And three is uh, the anti-American revolution that Dugin is proposing Russia be the staging ground for. You know, I don't, I don't place much stock in the anti-bourgeois part of all that because just as a reminder, Russia is capitalist and it has not been communist since 1991 and russia is run by a small group of ultra-rich oligarchs which putin himself you know he's rumored to be the richest man on the planet so here's where i have to stop for a second and i'm going to try and wrap all these ideas together and so far we've talked a lot about geopolitical strategy but not so much about philosophy well alexander dugan is a philosopher or he considers himself to be one He's written a lot of books, and well, one philosopher that seems to stick out in most or all of Dugan's work uh, is Martin Heidegger. Heidegger, as you'll recall from the episode we did with Richard Polt, because you're a longtime listener of this show, uh, he was, you know, Heidegger was a member of the Nazi party. And the question of can we extricate 
Heidegger's philosophy from his political work was always controversial. I mean, you can make an argument that all of existentialism is against a backdrop of Heidegger's best-known work, Being in Time. And while we can issue a full-throated condemnation at Heidegger the person, thanks to his little black notebooks that were uh, discovered after his death, uh, you know, we can't deny the impact of Heidegger on philosophy as a whole. And to explain the way Dugan has deployed the work of Heidegger, I think there's some context here worth noting. And so this is going to be a little crude, so forgive me for cutting corners here. So Martin Heidegger has a concept called Dasein. It's a massive part of being and time, and it's a little tricky to explain. But it's a word that means being there. Heidegger believes that human beings fall into routines and habits that he calls everydayness. And within those habits and routines, we are not being our authentic selves. And of course, we want to be our authentic selves, and Dasein, or being there, is a way of rescuing our authentic selves from everydayness. So how do we get to Dasein, or being there, if we are trapped within our everydayness? Well, we have to live towards death, because only in living towards death does one discover their true authentic self. At the center of Dasein is the perennial philosophical question of life, who am I? Heidegger describes the emergency of being as an urgency to issue an answer to this central question of who am I? Because we must determine who we are in order to reach our authentic selves and save ourselves from our everydayness, and living towards death really helps with answering the question of who am I? Because confrontations with our own mortality triggers authentic answers. So, as you can tell, that all that sounds pretty existentialist. I mean, John Paul Sartre would pick up on these ideas of phenomenology and develop his own ideas of radical freedom in his work, Being and Nothingness. But here's the catch with all of these ideas. Martin Heidegger was a card-carrying Nazi, deeply anti-Semitic, but during the 1930s, when Nazis were coming to power, the conservative revolution, the Weimar Republic, and nationalism was in the air, his central questions of what is being and who am I kind of turned towards who are we. And ultimately, his philosophies came to embody his politics at times, and you end up with certain passages that Professor Ronald Beener says are nothing short of a call to genocide. So, here's a quote that Professor Beener pointed out to me when I spoke to him on this show. Um, this is from Heidegger Being in Truth. Quote, An enemy is each and every person who poses an essential threat to the Dasein of the people and its individual members. The enemy does not have to be external, and the external enemy is not even always the more dangerous one. It can seem as if there were no enemy then it is a fundamental requirement to find the enemy, to expose the enemy to the light, or even first to make the enemy, so that this standing against the enemy may happen, and so that Dasein may not lose its edge. The challenge is to bring the enemy into the open, to harbor no illusions about the enemy, to keep oneself ready for attack, to cultivate and intensify a constant readiness and to prepare the attack looking far ahead with the goal of total annihilation. 
Alright, well, we're going to return now to Alexander Dugan, but I want you to hold on to these ideas about Martin Heidegger, Dasein, and the Dasein of the people. So far, we've only addressed one of Dugan's books, uh, The Foundations of Geopolitics. But now I want to speak to you about Dugan's magnum opus, a book called Fourth Political Theory. Fourth Political Theory is a book that also features on its cover the Eurasian symbol of eight-pointed arrows expanding outwards. Looking at the inside of the book, we find that Daniel Freiberg is given credit for the layout. Daniel Freiberg is a leading figure of the Swedish neo-fascist and alt-right movements, and he's also the founder of Arctos Publishing, the world's largest distributor of far-right literature. By the way, Arctos is the Greek word for north. I'll leave that for you to interpret however you wish. Uh, but previous to founding Arctos in 2009, Freiberg distributed white power music and Nazi paraphernalia, and his stated goal was to create a Swedish parallel to the American alt-right media. As you might have guessed, Fourth Political Theory is distributed by Arctos Media, along with several other titles written by Alexander Dugan, in 2019, Arctos was publishing more than 120 titles by 54 authors. Uh, they also do some work in translation of works that were previously not available in English, which is pretty much how Alexander Dugan's work uh, gained popularity in the United States. So uh, Dugan's books are advertised on the Arctos website side by side with the work of other authors, such as Alain de Benoit, which is... Uh, he's a French ethno-nationalist and a founding member of uh, Novel Droit, or the New Right in France. Jared Taylor, who's an American white supremacist. Julius Evla, an Italian fascist intellectual and mystic whose work Dugan is greatly influenced by. And, you know, uh, Daniel Freiberg lists his book on there as well. So, even though the main publisher of Dugan's work is the largest distributor of far-right literature and his name is listed beside white supremacists, anti-Semites, and far-right nationalists, Dugan has stated publicly that he rejects the accusation of being a racist. And he's got a rather elaborate explanation, and we'll probably get into that at some point. Um, but for now, just know that the same guy who founded Arctos Publishing also did the layout for Dugan's book, and one of the translators for Fourth Political Theory was Michael Millerman. And wouldn't you know, one of Michael Millerman's dissertation advisors was Professor Ronald Beener, author of Dangerous Minds and friend of this podcast. I mean, you remember the episode where we spoke to Professor Beener about his book and how Professor Beener resigned from his position as dissertation advisor to Michael Millerman in protest. Uh, because he was aware of Dugan and the project of Dugan. And, uh, you know, Ronald Beener and I got a chance to talk about uh, Alexander Dugan a bit. Um, here's just a brief uh, snippet from that conversation. You know, I've read some of the Heidegger book. It's, 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 it's not easygoing, and it's, it's very obscure, but he obviously sees in a way, sees uh, potential in Heidegger for doing for Russia what Heidegger himself hoped to do for Nazi Germany, to, to create a new, new dispensation, a new, uh, whole new kind of moral political order uh, and a, a viciously anti-liberal moral and political order uh, that was uh, 
Heidegger's project in, in, in the 30s in Germany. And uh, Dugan clearly aspires to uh, reanimate that project, relocate it to Moscow in the 21st century. And, you know, that's a very scary project. I mean, Heidegger may or may not have come to see that that was misguided. I'm not sure he ever fully appreciated, you know, there's a whole literature on Heidegger's realizing that he made a mistake in 1933, but his Nietzschean commitment to destroy uh, liberal modernity goes long beyond 1933 or even the 1930s. And if you read the Der Spiegel interview, you can, it's pretty easy, I think, to see how, how much of a fascist Heidegger still is. And clearly that's, it, that's the, tra Heidegger's attraction for Dugan is not so much a great thinker, but a great fascist thinker or someone who can, is a resource for fascism. So Ronald Beener, professor emeritus of political science, believes Dugan is out to construct a whole new, viciously anti-liberal moral and political order. And he believes that was the project of Heidegger in Germany. Now, in that part of the conversation, Professor Beener mentions a Nietzschean commitment to destroying liberal modernity. And although he's speaking about Martin Heidegger having a Nietzschean commitment, uh, I think you'll find that Alexander Dugan is picking up that Nietzschean mantle and carrying it forward throughout his project of Russian expansion. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's listen to how Michael Millerman, translator of Fourth Political Theory, the guy who tried to do his dissertation on Alexander Dugan, let's listen to how he would describe what Fourth Political Theory is. This is about a two-minute clip of an interview I found with Michael Millerman on YouTube. All right. The basic idea of the fourth political theory is as follows. The 20th century was a struggle of ideologies, liberalism, communism, and fascism. He calls those the first, second, and third political theories. And it includes also their variants, okay? shades of liberalism, shades of communism, and shades of fascism. By the end of the 20th century, liberalism was the last ideology standing. Some people declared that moment a liberal triumphalism. They said this, right? Yeah, the end of history. Exactly. Right? The basic idea that we have come to the last, if history is the history of philosophical ideas, and here you, we have the last great philosophical idea, human rights, universal freedom, the state that guarantees individual rights and freedoms, all of that, liberalism was seen as it had its triumphalist moment. However, he says, what if you reject communism, which you do, he does, fascism, which he says is to, to be rejected, but also liberalism? Well, here you're not really left at first with any obvious alternative, because those three exhausted the ideological space in the 20th century. And by the time liberalism came out victorious, there wasn't a coherent ideological alternative. Now people start to talk populism, this, that, but... Strictly speaking, there was no obvious theoretical alternative. So he says, this is the initial gesture or mo logical moment of the, of the fourth political theory. If we reject all three of liberalism, communism, and fascism, and we don't want to get caught up in the trap of believing they're exhaustive, that they exhaust all the alternatives, we should declare the space of a fourth political theory. And just that first declaration, the naming, the carving out of a contextual space for thinking, already gives you a breath of fresh air from what is on the other side of it, right? From having to choose between those three. So that doesn't sound too bad, does it? I mean, 
On the surface, the carving out of a space to think, a new beginning, learning from the past in a way that allows us to have a fresh perspective on old problems. But it's kind of strange to call the space you're carving out fourth political theory. Um, but I get that you may not even wish to assign it a name. Um, but you know, I've been told by more than a couple of people that have read fourth political theory that the book feels like a work of Heideggerian mysticism. Here's about a four and a half minute clip of Alexander Dugan speaking in an interview, and I wanted to give you the full context on this. And if you take all the items I've mentioned about Heidegger so far and the things Professor Beener mentioned, this clip will really string together quite a bit of what we've done over so far. The subject line of the first three political theories, or the, the subject of choice, the individual, race, and class, in contrast, the, the fourth political theory, uh, you said the subject there is Dasein. Um, I don't know if I fully grok that, and I understand what you're saying, what it could afford us, but maybe you can kind of speak more about what that means to you and why you chose that particular um, term. Of Dasein. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so uh, um, that, that was, uh, uh, in, uh, uh, according to my um, understanding, we could not uh, 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 we could not just return to the pre-modernity, or, or at least in order to return to the pre-modernity, we need to prepare the ground for that. But we could not do that. In, in the, uh, uh, without understanding the logic of modernity. We could not do that without uh, asking ourselves why the modernity. And that um, traditionalists and conservatives generally lack this why modernity. They say, oh, modernity is bad, let's uh, resist the modernity. And they, the conservatives and traditionalists, they just follow uh, follow modernity, saying, oh, not, not at such speed, please, please. That is just reactionary. So the defense of the pre-modernity is just reactionary without understanding why modernity, what is the reason, what is the telos in Aristotelian uh, terms. And Heidegger provides something different. He deconstructs uh, modernity. He uh, he makes from modernity a kind of logical moment and development of the history of the Western of the West and of the Western thought and Western philosophy. That precisely is abandoning and forgetting uh, of, of the concepts or the idea of being. So uh, this uh, uh, um, the process to forget. The question of being is something logical, and according to Heidegger, that is a kind of explanation of this modernity. So, what is modernity? This complete, complete oblivion of the question of being. And the previous, previous, um, uh, previous uh, periods, stages of the Western philosophy were a kind of preparation in the same in the same in the same direct direction and when heidegger proposes to get out from this situation not just returning to the past not not in the reactionary way but proposing new beginning so to understand to grasp the meaning why we have for, uh, forgotten uh, the, the being, the West, and how we need and where we should 
um, find it once more. And that is precisely uh, everything is connected uh, to design concept. So we, sh we should de deconstruct all kinds of Western subject, philosophical, of modern, uh, and we need to, to rely on design in order to, 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 um, to put once more the question of being. So we need to start with the most profound, in my opinion, uh, uh, pro problem. And on that uh, basis to develop uh, as well fourth political theory as application, as praxis, practical aspect of this new philosophy of new beginning and returning to authentic existence of the design. Selbst of design, uh, self of design should, should replace alienated uh, subject. That is rather das Mann in Heideggerian term. That is main idea, that is why design. So Michael Millerman spoke of fourth political theory as an ideological follow-up to communism, fascism, and liberalism. In the first few pages of Fourth Political Theory, Alexander Dugan says that the historical subject of the first political theory, liberalism, is the individual. The historical subject of the second political theory, communism, is class. And the historical subject of the third political theory, fascism, is the state, as in Italian fascism, or race, as in German National Socialism. So what does he mean? by the historical subject of the fourth political theory being Dasein. During that clip, Dugan speaks of returning to pre-modernity. And what exactly does returning to pre-modernity mean? How exactly does one return to pre-modernity? And this is where I want to recall that Foundations of Geopolitics calls for Russia to be the staging ground for an anti-American revolution and calls for the Finlandization of Europe. Professor Ronald Beener spoke of a Nietzschean commitment to destroying liberal modernity. And I think that's an important thing to consider here as we question what Dugan means by returning to pre-modernity or deconstructing all kinds of Western subjects. I mean, let's not forget that Foundations of Geopolitics is calling for the Eurasian Empire to be constructed, quote, on the fundamental principle of the common enemy, the rejection of Atlanticism, strategic control of the United States, and the refusal to allow liberal values to dominate us. So what I mean is that when Alexander Dugan says we must return to pre-modernity, his implication is the negation of modernity itself, modernity being the liberal order of Western culture in which the United States is the center point. See, in that last clip, he says, while alluding to Heidegger's question of being, that his reasoning for thinking the world needs to return to pre-modernity is because the West has fundamentally forgotten the question of being. The West, to continue using Heideggerian language, is inauthentic, trapped in the everydayness of liberalism. But you know, let's stop here and let's point out that Heidegger, although he considered himself to be a phenomenologist, he was a massive influence on existentialism, and existentialism is described as the great philosophical turn inward because it's a very individualistic school of thought. Sartre with the radical freedom of the human subject and Simone de Beauvoir's The Ethics of Ambiguity. I mean, pondering your specific space in the cosmos 
is inherently an individualistic task. So how is Dugan taking something like Dasein and applying it to large swaths of people as if Dasein is something universal that could apply to all people at all places at all times? I mean, he, he's not a Kantian, right? He's not creating a universal uh, categorical imperative of Dasein here. It seems kind of wild to me. Um, and to me, this whole thing seems very contradictory since Dugan seems to be in opposition of the universalisms of liberalism. I mean, in his manifesto for Russian expansion, one of the core tenets of the Eurasian Empire is to, quote, not allow liberal values to dominate us. So here's another four-minute clip, and it's actually the other half of the clip I played before. And this is where Dugan provides an explanation for the contradiction of the individual versus the universal. And I think this will help explain why he chose Dasein as the political subject of the fourth political theory. Speaking with the um, disciple uh, of Heidegger, Professor Hermann in Freiburg some years ago, I have suggested uh, the idea that there is as well in Heidegger one very important thing. He thought, Heidegger, that design is universal. But in my, in my, in my opinion, it is not. Uh, design uh, depends on the culture, on the civilization. And we have spoken with von Hermann that Heidegger uh, wouldn't accept this a multiplicity of designs, this multitude of designs, because Heidegger was somehow linked to, to only to Western, uh, Western form. He was very critical and very innovative, uh, criticizing Western modernity, but still he was the part of this Western universalism, uh, but in a very special thing. So there, so there is a very, very important shift uh, in my uh, reading of Heidegger, uh, I have dedicated to that uh, problem my book on Russian design that is now translated by uh, uh, our friend Michael Millerman. Uh, he has finished the translation, where I, uh, uh, I try to apply Heideggerian concept of design to Russian uh, identity. And I have uh, come to the conclusion that many, many uh, existentials should be changed, uh, applying to. So we could not apply Heideggerian understanding of design to the designs of other culture, because we have different relation to death. We have different relation to, uh, to, to the horror, to the care, and other uh, existential aspects. So uh, my uh, understanding of um, design is um, uh, plural. Heidegger as well, he has spoken about German design, and that was totally, that was legitimate. But when he say design is unique, he thought that West, the German design is Western design, Western design is universal design. The same, the same attitude of the uh, uh, European ethnocentrism. In my opinion, there is German design, there is Western design, that is, there is different totally Chinese design, Russian design, Indian design, African design, and maybe inside of these cultures and civilizations, we could identify the other kinds of design. So my second definition of the subject of first political theory is the people. 
the people, not society, not ethnic groups, nor, nor, nor race, absolutely, nor class, nor individual, but a community of the destiny sharing the same existential identity. So the design on one hand and the people as the um, philosophical concept as well abandoned in the modernity. We are dealing with individual, we are dealing with race, we are dealing with nation, with state, with class, with society, but not with the people. And the people from Renaissance uh, uh, still is in the heart of our constitution. So our interpretation of modern constitutions is uh, a kind of usurpation, ideological usurpation of the concept of the people. Because you know, for liberals, people is the sum of individuals, for uh, communists that is the form of class, and for uh, nationalists, uh, the people is political nation. But people neither is uh, this uh, one of this thing, it is community of, this, uh, of the uh, shared exis existence, of shared cultural identity based on the same, more or less the same relation uh, to, to that. So that is existential concept. So if you followed me this far, I think you're starting to see a fuzzy outline of a very unsettling image I'm painting for you. Alexander Dugin believes that Dasein is not universal, and Dasein depends on the culture and the civilization. He describes his reading of Dasein as plural, a multiplicity of Daseins each depending upon cultures, civilizations, and peoples that share a common existential destiny. And he can't compare one culture to the other, or the Dasein of one culture to the Dasein of another culture, uh, because comparing cultures or people is not possible. They're incommensurate, we'll say. And he says we take it as a given that Western Dasein is a universal Dasein, and I would presume he believes the concept of the West containing a universal Dasein to be false, since he's taking Heidegger's uh, concept of a universal Dasein and breaking that universal paradigm uh, to the extent that he can break it down and apply it to large swaths of people that are said to sh you know, share a common existential destiny. Um, so let's just pause here and think about this for a second. What would you call a political ideology that gathered a culture or a civilization, labeled it the people, and told them that they all shared a common existential destiny? And then you took that ideology and organized the people around the fundamental principle of a common enemy. I mean, does all this sound like the Heidegger quote that Professor Beener pointed me to? I mean, let me just show you this quote one more time. This is Heidegger in Being and Truth. Quote, An enemy is each and every member who poses an essential threat to the Dasein of the people and its individual members. The enemy does not have to be external, and the external enemy is not even always the more dangerous one. And it can seem as if there were no enemy. Then it is a fundamental requirement to find the enemy, to expose the enemy to the light, or even first to make the enemy so that this standing against the enemy may happen, so that Dasein may not lose its edge. The challenge is to bring the enemy into the open, to harbor no illusions about the enemy, to keep oneself ready for attack, 
to cultivate and intensify a constant readiness and to prepare the attack looking far ahead with the goal of total annihilation. So in my studies and in the time that I've spent working on this subject matter, I have been referring to this unique version of Dugan-influenced fascism simply as spiritual fascism. And I want to say that the spiritual aspects of fascism, uh, combining those aspects, is not unique to Dugan. That's not an original thought. Um, much of the influence that Dugan has regarding the combination of fascism and spiritualism, uh, that comes from an Italian fascist thinker named Julius Evola. Now, at this point, I, I think this episode is about an hour long so far. And I think that if I went into Julius Evola right now, uh, it might be too far of a digression. So what I want to do is I want to play another clip of Alexander Dugan for you. And this clip is going to be Dugan talking about uh, how his mission is actually spiritual. Um, the symbol for Eurasianism is spiritual and also, he says straight up that he has the ear of Vladimir Putin. I am leading conservative prophet of modern Putin's Russia. He knows what I am and what I think and what it's all about. He uh, follows this agenda and is consulting this agenda when he thinks it's important. I'm describing what he should do from the purely platonic point of view. Mm -hmm. I, I'm dealing with platonic um, concept of Russia, ideal Russia, imperial Russia, with uh, archetypes of uh, the father or sacred politics. And I'm affirming, affirming that from the completely theoretical point of view. It is a kind of uh, if, if you want some kind of eternal, eternal plan. Mm -hmm. So that, that was, com that was uh, more or less the same in the Tsar or Stalin time or Chinggis Khan time. If I live uh, in the Chinggis Khan time or Stalin or uh, even the terrible, mm -hmm. I would uh, advise to them more or less the same thing I'm advising to Putin, to create strong, independent, Russia as um, telurocratic, continental, continental civilization with and defending our values against everybody who aggress that. If we Russians, we prefer Tsar, who cares? Why everybody in the West is against that? If we choose Tsar, if we choose uh, hierarchy, who cares in, in the West? But if, if we like our president and we consider his position as sacred one, if we possess the sense of sacredness, the, the spiritual dimension, if we believe in the mission of our people, we don't touch the West, touch the West. But the West is aggressing us because the West is absolutely sure that the West represents the universal values. If Dutch society in the Holland chooses to be gay, gay marriage, 
to be um, to use uh, drugs and to 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 make any kind of choice personal or collective of politic i think we need to respect that we need the respect of the free will of people but if we come to holland we russians for us all these values are satanic um, uh, devilish and completely unacceptable if we come to holland and begin to impose by the force by the politics by economics by some measure by pressure to change dutch people imposing necessity of tsardom russian tsardom uh, sacrality orthodox church and only natural uh, attitude with big measure of vodka i think that dutch people revolt this blue heavenly uh, star inside that uh, represents uh, a kind of expansion, but not military or politically, but spiritually. Uh, and that is a kind of expansion in any direction. Mm -hmm. So Eurasianism, it is a kind um, of expansion of the heartland that also moves in any direction. So Russia is considered to be a kind of, of um, solar plexus mm -hmm. uh, of, of the continental body uh, and uh, also the kind of bridge uh, between Europe and Asia. The name Alexander Dugin is one which is generally only recognized within certain academic circles. But it seems like now that Russia has invaded Ukraine and Vladimir Putin has now begun to act on Dugin's geopolitical prognostications. Uh, the Eurasian ideology of Alexander Dugin and, uh, you know, the origins of that ideology, it's probably not safe to ignore this stuff anymore. You know, a few years ago, scholars would shake their heads in disbelief at Dugin's eclectic, even bizarre mix of sources, uh, his fascination with the occult, including Satanism, and uh, his sort of postmodern quality of uh, eclectic philosophy, including European geopolitics and strategy, Gnostic mysticism, occultism, traditionalism, and uh, the, the whole national Bolshevik thing he did with his advocacy of left fascism and rightist communism. So I think it's important to uh, kind of further clarify here um because the only thing we really haven't talked about is the national bolshevism thing and i think that there's a space for it here um because the question arises uh so if he wants to destroy modernity or if he wants to destroy the liberal order or if he wants to return to pre-modernity um how would he go about doing that um well one way that he thought um back in the days when he formed the National Bolshevik Party um, was to combine the left and the right. Um, so here's a clip of Dugan talking about how, I mean, basically what his ideas were. It's been described as a sort of ecumenical jihad in that like the left is not strong enough to defeat liberalism on its own, but neither is the right. So this combination of a red-brown alliance uh, in Dugan's theory, 
and in his politics of national Bolshevism, these collectives would come together uh, to form an ecumenical jihad against the West, against liberalism. Here, here's this clip. You can just listen to him say it himself. National Bolshevism was a kind of political understanding of the victory of liberalism and the, uh, at the end of the 90s of the uh, president uh, century. The national Bolshevists, uh, new national Bolshevists, they have remarked that both traditional anti-liberal left and traditional anti-liberal right, nationalism, patriotism, as well as socialism and communism, and now uh, uh, they, they are defeated by liberalism and they could not act or, or react against this victory of liberalism uh, by them uh, in isolated way. So in order to overcome liberalism, they should unite their, their, their forces. That is very interesting and very fruitful uh, ideological vision. In order to win uh, this liberal totalitarianism, we need to join the, the, the forces from the left and from the right, mm -hmm. all kinds of illiberal ideology, but, ideologies. But I think that now we are um, we, we see that it is not enough that we need something else that's just unification of the uh, left illiberalism and right illiberalism. It is not easy to to put them together because they during all the modernity they belonged to the opposite poles of political or political struggles and so on. It is not uh, it is not easy to 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 join them. So mm -hmm. so. If you've been hanging with me this far, I want to say thank you for listening to all of this. This was a tough episode to make, and I really appreciate you sticking it out. Um, I want to start to wrap this up with some final thoughts. Uh, the first of which is that there's more than enough I haven't covered in this episode to make a part two. And so depending on the feedback for this episode, I get I might make a second episode. Um, and I'm going to frame these kind of final thoughts as answers to questions that I imagine might be in the mind of my dear listeners. So first I want to address those listeners who are coming away unimpressed with this information because I know you're out there and I know you're thinking, so what? All countries draft up geopolitical plans. They're playing on the global stage of power, sitting at the geopolitical poker table where every nation is cheating. Leaders are Machiavellian and everyone wants to rule the world. Why should I care about Russia's version of all of this? Well, in response, I want to say that I think you're failing to see the much larger meta view on all of this. I mean, there is a lot at stake here. And I think the largest item at stake might not even be World War III. I think the Enlightenment itself is being challenged. This is the biggest culture war in the world, dating back to the French Revolution. These are Western values, secularism, individualism, universalism, versus Eastern values of the non-secular, collective, and particular. This is irrationalism versus reason. This is the mystical versus scientism. And this is reactionary versus progressive. This is the polarization of the world revealing itself to be a much deeper, darker divide than we have all cared to recognize. And this is the biggest pushback against enlightenment values 
that the world has ever seen. Another thing I want to say about this, and part of the urgency I have felt behind my motivations for creating this episode, is that I believe there is enough evidence written and taken from interviews with Alexander Dugin that we don't have to question whether or not Russia plans on stopping at the western border of Ukraine. See, when you have a manifesto for western expansion, and you act on your plan with clear intentions of subjugating a smaller country, or Finlandizing it, just like you've done with Belarus, that's imperialism. And Russia is a capitalist country, and we all know that capitalism always has the need to seek out new markets, and so we should have never expected capitalism to stay home in Russia. Nor would it stay in Ukraine if Russia just happened to stop at their western border. Russia could choose to not provoke a greater confrontation with the West. Uh, they could, and I hope they do, because my stance on all of this is no war but class war. But again, all of this is just not safe to ignore anymore. I had my doubts as to its overall relevance, but those doubts went out the window when I watched Putin invade Ukraine. Knowing Dugin had written about the prospect of doing such a thing as far back as 1997, the next thing I want to address before we close this whole thing up is the pluralism of Dugin's fascism. I want to speak about the pluralism of Dugin's Dasein. And I think it's important to state plainly that this is a really dangerous concept for Dugin to have in his hands. The way Dugin speaks of the people, or a culture, or a civilization, and the way he's unwilling to compare groups of people side by side, on the surface, that can seem really innocuous. Like, where exactly is the harm in allowing a thousand flowers to bloom? We live in a diverse and multicultural, inclusive world. Uh, doesn't pluralism, even a plural Dasein, align with all of those core liberal values? Well, again, this concept of particularism, it's not original to Dugan. It goes all the way back to a counter-enlightenment thinker of the 18th century named Giambattista Vico. In a way, these thoughts do align with liberal core values, so much so that the philosopher Isaiah Berlin seemed to adopt some of the particularism of Vico into his own liberal worldview. The difference here is that this is Alexander Dugan we're talking about. Dugan is a leading intellectual leader of a neo-fascist movement. Let's not take that lightly. Though there is something strange about a person whose books are sold next to books written by white nationalists, Nazis, and neo-fascists, telling you he's in favor of pluralism. But let's be real here. Dugan's version of pluralism is a polite and palatable way of saying blood and soil. That's what, that's what it is. What better way to reject the universalism of liberalism than by beautifying the particular? Only with Dugan, the particular is tied to ethnicity. It's tied to the land and unique history of a peoples, a culture developed over many years. If you take this to its logical end, he's describing an ethnostate, and he's really doing a lot of dancing around the term ethnocentrism. Dugan is a conservative, and conservatives wish to reinforce hierarchies. You heard him mention in the clip something like, if Russia chooses hierarchies, why does the West care? Peoples, culture, land, tradition, a shared existential destiny, a Dasein of particular peoples, constructed on the fundamental concept of a common enemy. All of this amounts to fascism, and the pluralism is just a disguise he's placing all of that in, 
and it also helps to obscure his real meanings and intentions when you place those things against a conversational backdrop of a multipolar world. And if we zoom out and look at the whole sum of Dugan's project, it's deeply anti-Occidental, meaning it's profoundly antithetical to liberal values and in stark opposition to Western culture. So the philosophical project of Dugan can't possibly be plural in its aim and objectives if you're organizing both sides of the political spectrum in an ecumenical jihad to destroy Western culture, dismantle Western subjects. And now, the last thing that I'll say after all of that, and this is for the listeners who are Marxists, who listen to this show for what I hope you consider to be principled analysis, who expect a certain theoretical line from my views. Uh, this one is for those listeners, okay? And I want to tell those who consider themselves to be revolutionary socialists, the communists still listening, I love you all, by the way, so please don't hate me when I tell you that this red-brown garbage is in our movement and Dugan's influence is a real thing. Of course, folks don't appreciate being called a national Bolshevik, but you deserve to be called a lot worse than that if you're willing to align with fascists. And I want you to know that a very prominent leftist, I say leftist quote unquote, he's met with Alexander Dugan, and there's video of those two sitting in a room with a Eurasian flag on the wall, and says that he's read the fourth political theory. And in the speech that he gave, he made really flattering remarks to Dugan's ideas. I mean, given the events of the last few days, I think a few of you might accuse me of issuing a red scare around I mean, maybe it's a bad choice to even mention him here. But has also been a prominent supporter of something called patriotic socialism. And there's a whole bunch of these people online. I'm sure that you've seen them. They're contradictory and they're confusing and they seem to pop up on your social media regardless of what circles on the left you belong to. The position of patriotic socialists is that communism is conservative. That's their position on it. I know it sounds weird, um, but it's just so weird that Caleb Maupin just happened to be a reporter for Russia Today. So weird that he just happened to sit in a room with Alexander Dugan and tell him that he's read his work and that he thinks more people should read it. You know, the book with the layout done by the white nationalist, and uh, did I tell you that American neo-Nazi Richard Spencer, his wife, used to translate Dugan's work? That's the book that says that other people should read and uh, that he was deferent to and, and complimented. Uh, and there's video of that on YouTube. I met with Dugan, there's video of that, and has reportedly denied that he's a national Bolshevik or a Red Brown. And I just think that smart enough person to know that if there are Nazis sitting at a table and you sit down with them, you're a Nazi too. I just think that Alexander Dugan might be the only person in the world actively attempting to form an ecumenical jihad against the West, against liberalism. And he's probably the only person with enough influence to attempt advocating a left fascism or rightist communism. But maybe that's what patriotic socialism is the counterpart to Dugan's version of fascism. Left fascism being contemporary communism infused with nationalism and rightist communism being Dugan's version of a plurinationalist Dasein of the people. So I'm going to leave you with a few clips and some outro music after that. Take care, all my guys, gals, and non-binary pals.
See ya. Dugan's very, very uh, uh, dangerous character, and it, it's very d- disturbing just to reflect on the degree of influence he has in the in the contemporary uh, right, or at least it's, it's uh, uh, self-proclaimed, you know, intellectual vanguard. Uh, and, you know, Arcos leading far-right press, they just pump out... Uh, Dugan book after Dugan book. And, you know, in a way, you know, he's the banner behind which they're marching. And that's very disturbing. I mean, Dugan is a complete uh, crank and maniac and, and, uh, and someone who, you know, fancies himself as a great intellectual. One of perhaps maybe this is one of the scarier, more threatening aspects of this story that, that these ideas are not, just pure nonsense and we should never expect there to be it, it, it's as unlikely right. as, as as challenging for someone to come up with an ideology that is 100 percent bullshit it's also, it's also when i'm like fucking dugan is quoting uh deleuze and and, and heidegger <laughs> and shit and i'm like wait a second man you're not supposed to be keep those guys out your mouth bro you know so yep yes <laughs> uh, Derrida, yeah i mean yeah that that, hap- that that happens these are these are not stupid people I'm using Heidegger, I'm using Evola, I, I'm appealing to Carl Schmitt or Ernst Jünger, as well as to Foucault, as well as to, uh, uh, to uh, Delos, uh, as well as to Freud, to, to Jung, uh, to, to many other, uh, uh, other authorities, but uh, liberals. Uh, trying to, to undermine uh, my position, try to reduce my position to, to kind of third political theory. Thanks for listening to No Easy Answers, a Marxist podcast about politics, philosophy, and the human condition. I am Jules Taylor, and I just wanted to say goodbye through that long goodbye, long phone call thing here. Um, anyway, like and subscribe, tell your friends, uh, make sure to spread these uh, episodes around. Word of mouth is the biggest compliment we receive. And of course, subscribe to our Patreon, where you get lots of cool bonus content, including a bunch of stuff right now about counter-enlightenment thinkers, an interview with a professor of political science, Matthew McManus. And you can also get uh, another conversation I had about this very topic, uh, all that right now is available at our Patreon, including some of the videos we do for the show. So, you know, I'm here. I'm trying to say goodbye and uh, take care, guys, gals, non-binary pals. See ya.